Part Three Gorgias by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Part Three Gorgias. We will now consider in order some of the principal points of the dialogue, having regard, one, to the age of Plato and the ironical character of his writings. We may compare him with himself and with other great teachers, and we may note in passing the objections of his critics, and then, two, casting one eye upon him, we may cast another upon ourselves and endeavour to draw out the great lessons which he teaches for all time, stripped of the accidental form in which they are enveloped. 1. In the Gorgias, as in nearly all the other dialogues of Plato, we are made aware that formal logic has as yet no existence. The old difficulty of framing a definition recurs. The elusive analogy of the arts and the virtues also continues the ambiguity of several words such as nature custom the honourable the good is not cleared up the sophists are still floundering about the distinction of the real and seeming figures of speech are made the basis of arguments the possibility of conceiving a universal art or science which admits of application to a particular subject matter, is a difficulty which remains unsolved, and has not altogether ceased to haunt the world at the present day. Compare Carmides. The defect of clearness is also apparent in Socrates himself, unless we suppose him to be practicing on the simplicity of his opponent, or rather perhaps trying an experiment in dialectics. Nothing can be more fallacious than the contradiction which he pretends to have discovered in the answers of Gorgias, see above. The advantages which he gains over Paulus are also due to a false antithesis of pleasure and good, and to an erroneous assertion that an agent and a patient may be described by similar predicates, a mistake which Aristotle partly shares and partly corrects in the Nicomachean Ethics. Traces of a robust sophistry are likewise discernible in his argument with Callicles. 2. Although Socrates professes to be convinced by reason only, yet the argument is often a sort of dialectical fiction, by which he conducts himself and others to his own ideal of life and action, and we may sometimes wish that we could have suggested answers to his antagonists, or pointed out to them the rocks which lay concealed under the ambiguous terms good, pleasure, and the like. But it would be as useless to examine his arguments by the requirements of modern logic as to criticize this ideal from a merely utilitarian point of view. If we say that the ideal is generally regarded as unattainable, and that mankind will by no means agree in thinking that the criminal is happier when punished, 
than when unpunished, any more than they would agree to the stoical paradox that a man may be happy on the rack. Plato has already admitted that the world is against him. Neither does he mean to say that Archelaus is tormented by the stings of conscience, or that the sensations of the impaled criminal are more agreeable than those of the tyrant drowned in luxurious enjoyment. Neither is he speaking, as in the Protagoras, of virtue as a calculation of pleasure, an opinion which he afterwards repudiates in the Phaedo. What, then, is his meaning? His meaning we shall be able to illustrate best by parallel notions, which, whether justifiable by logic or not, have always existed among mankind. We must remind the reader that Socrates himself implies that he will be understood or appreciated by very few. He is speaking not of the consciousness of happiness, but of the idea of happiness. When a martyr dies in a good cause, when a soldier falls in battle, we do not suppose that death or wounds are without pain, or that their physical suffering is always compensated by a mental satisfaction. Still, we regard them as happy, and we would a thousand times rather have their death than a shameful life. Nor is this only because we believe that they will obtain an immortality of fame, or that they will have crowns of glory in another world, when their enemies and persecutors will be proportionably tormented. Men are found in a few instances to do what is right, without reference to public opinion or to consequences, and we regard them as happy on this ground only, much as Socrates' friends in the opening of the Phaedo are described as regarding him, or, as was said of another, they looked upon his face as upon the face of an angel. We are not concerned to justify this idealism by the standard of utility or public opinion, but merely to point out the existence of such a sentiment in the better part of human nature. The idealism of Plato is founded upon this sentiment. He would maintain that in some sense or other, truth and right are alone to be sought, and that all other goods are only desirable as means towards these. He is thought to have erred in considering the agent only, and making no reference to the happiness of others as affected by him. But the happiness of others, or of mankind, if regarded as an end, is really quite as ideal and almost as paradoxical to the common understanding as Plato's conception of happiness. For the greatest happiness of the greatest number may mean also the greatest pain of the individual, which will procure the greatest pleasure of the greatest number. Ideas of utility, like those of duty and right, may be pushed to unpleasant consequences. Nor can Plato in the Gorgias be deemed purely self-regarding, considering that Socrates expressly mentions the duty of imparting the truth when discovered to others. Nor must we forget that the side of ethics which regards others is by the ancients merged in politics. Both in Plato and Aristotle, as well as in the Stoics, the social principle, though taking another form, 
is really far more prominent than in most modern treatises on ethics. The idealizing of suffering is one of the conceptions which have exercised the greatest influence on mankind. Into the theological import of this, or into the consideration of the errors to which the idea may have given rise, we need not now enter. All will agree that the ideal of the divine sufferer, whose words the world would not receive, the man of sorrows, of whom the Hebrew prophet spoke, has sunk deep into the heart of the human race. It is a similar picture of suffering goodness which Plato desires to portray, not without an allusion to the fate of his master, Socrates. He is convinced that, somehow or other, such an one must be happy in life or after death. In the Republic, he endeavors to show that his happiness would be assured here in a well-ordered state, but in the actual condition of human things, the wise and good are weak and miserable. Such an one is like a man fallen among wild beasts, exposed to every sort of wrong and obloquy. Plato, like other philosophers, is thus led on to the conclusion that if the ways of God to man are to be justified, the hopes of another life must be included. If the question could have been put to him, whether a man dying in torments was happy still, even if, as he suggests in the Apology, death be only a long sleep, we can hardly tell what would have been his answer. There have been a few who, quite independently of rewards and punishments, or of posthumous reputation, or any other influence of public opinion, have been willing to sacrifice their lives for the good of others. It is difficult to say how far in such cases an unconscious hope of a future life or a general faith in the victory of good in the world may have supported the sufferers. But this extreme idealism is not in accordance with the spirit of Plato. He supposes a day of retribution in which the good are to be rewarded and the wicked punished, though, as he says in the Phaedo, no man of sense will maintain that the details of the stories about another world are true. He will insist that something of the kind is true, and will frame his life with a view to this unknown future. Even in the Republic he introduces a future life as an afterthought, when the superior happiness of the just has been established on what is thought to be an immutable foundation. At the same time, he makes a point of determining his main thesis, independently of remoter consequences. 3. Plato's theory of punishment is partly vindictive, partly corrective. In the Gorgias, as well as in the Phaedo and Republic, a few great criminals, chiefly tyrants, are reserved as examples, but most men have never had the opportunity of attaining this preeminence of evil. They are not incurable, and their punishment is intended for their improvement. They are to suffer because they have sinned. Like sick men, they must go to the physician and be healed. On this representation of Plato's, 
the criticism has been made that the analogy of disease and injustice is partial only and that suffering instead of improving men may have just the opposite effect like the general analogy of the arts and the virtues the analogy of disease and injustice or of medicine and justice is certainly imperfect but ideas must be given through something the nature of the mind which is unseen can only be represented under figures derived from visible objects if these figures are suggestive of some new aspect under which the mind may be considered we cannot find fault with them for not exactly coinciding with the ideas represented they partake of the imperfect nature of language and must not be construed in too strict a manner that plato sometimes reasons from them as if they were not figures but realities is due to the defective logical analysis of his age nor does he distinguish between the suffering which improves and the suffering which only punishes and deters he applies to the sphere of ethics a conception of punishment which is really derived from criminal law he does not see that such punishment is only negative and supplies no principle of moral growth or development he is not far off the higher notion of an education of man to be begun in this world and to be continued in other stages of existence which is further developed in the republic and christian thinkers who have ventured out of the beaten track in their meditations on the last things have found a ray of light in his writings but he has not explained how or in what way punishment is to contribute to the improvement of mankind he has not followed out the principle which he affirms in the republic that god is the author of evil only with a view to good and that they were the better for being punished still his doctrine of a future state of rewards and punishments may be compared favorably with that perversion of christian doctrine which makes the everlasting punishment of human beings depend on a brief moment of time or even on the accident of an accident and he has escaped the difficulty which has often beset divines respecting the future destiny of the meaner sort of men thersites and the like who are neither very good nor very bad by not counting them worthy of eternal damnation we do plato violence in pressing his figures of speech or chains of argument and not less so in asking questions which were beyond the horizon of his vision or did not come within the scope of his design the main purpose of the gorgias is not to answer questions about a future world but to place in antagonism the true and false life and to contrast the judgments and opinions of men with judgment according to the truth plato may be accused of representing a superhuman or transcendental virtue in the description of the just man in the gorgias or in the companion portrait of the philosopher in the theaetetus and at the same time may be thought to be condemning a state of the world 
which always has existed and always will exist among men. But such ideals act powerfully on the imagination of mankind, and such condemnations are not mere paradoxes of philosophers, but the natural rebellion of the higher sense of right in man against the ordinary conditions of human life. The greatest statesmen have fallen very far short of the political ideal, and are therefore justly involved in the general condemnation. Subordinate to the main purpose of the dialogue are some other questions which may be briefly considered. a. The antithesis of good and pleasure, which as in other dialogues is supposed to consist in the permanent nature of the one compared with the transient and relative nature of the other. Good and pleasure, knowledge and sense, truth and opinion, essence and generation, virtue and pleasure, the real and the apparent, the infinite and the finite, harmony or beauty and discord, dialectic and rhetoric or poetry, are so many pairs of opposites, which in Plato easily pass into one another, and are seldom kept perfectly distinct. And we must not forget that Plato's conception of pleasure is the Heraclitean flux transferred to the sphere of human conduct. There is some degree of unfairness in opposing the principle of good which is objective to the principle of pleasure which is subjective. For the assertion of the permanence of good is only based on the assumption of its objective character. Had Plato fixed his mind not on the ideal nature of good, but on the subjective consciousness of happiness, that would have been found to be as transient and precarious as pleasure. b. The arts or sciences, when pursued without any view to truth, or the improvement of human life, are called flatteries. They are all alike dependent upon the opinion of mankind, from which they are derived. To Plato the whole world appears to be sunk in error, based on self-interest. To this is opposed the one wise man, hardly professing to have found truth, yet strong in the conviction that a virtuous life is the only good, whether regarded with reference to this world or to another. Statesmen, sophists, rhetoricians, poets, are alike brought up for judgment. They are the parodies of wise men, and their arts are the parodies of true arts and sciences. All that they call science is merely the result of that study of the tempers of the great beast, which he describes in the Republic. C. Various other points of contact naturally suggest themselves between the Gorgias and other dialogues, especially the Republic, the Philebus, and the Protagoras. There are closer resemblances both of spirit and language in the Republic than in any other dialogue, the verbal similarity tending to show that they were written at the same period of Plato's life. For the Republic supplies that education and training of which the Gorgias suggests the necessity. 
the theory of the many weak combining against the few strong in the formation of society which is indeed a partial truth is similar in both of them and is expressed in nearly the same language the sufferings and fate of the just man the powerlessness of evil and the reversal of the situation in another life are also points of similarity the poets like the rhetoricians are condemned because they aim at pleasure only as in the republic they are expelled the state because they are imitators and minister to the weaker side of human nature that poetry is akin to rhetoric may be compared with the analogous notion which occurs in the protagoras that the ancient poets were the sophists of their day in some other respects the protagoras rather offers a contrast than a parallel the character of protagoras may be compared with that of gorgias but the conception of happiness is different in the two dialogues being described in the former according to the old socratic notion as deferred or accumulated pleasure while in the gorgias and in the phaedo pleasure and good are distinctly opposed this opposition is carried out from a speculative point of view in the philippus there neither pleasure nor wisdom are allowed to be the chief good but pleasure and good are not so completely opposed as in the gorgias for innocent pleasures and such as have no antecedent pains are allowed to rank in the class of goods the allusion to gorgias's definition of rhetoric philippus compare gorgias as the art of persuasion of all arts the best for to it all things submit not by compulsion but of their own free will marks a close and perhaps designed connection between the two dialogues in both the ideas of measure order harmony are the connecting links between the beautiful and the good in general spirit and character that is in irony and antagonism to public opinion the gorgias most nearly resembles the apology crito and portions of the republic and like the philobus though from another point of view may be thought to stand in the same relation to plato's theory of morals which the theaetetus bears to his theory of knowledge d a few minor points still remain to be summed up one the extravagant irony in the reason which is assigned for the pilot's modest charge and in the proposed use of rhetoric as an instrument of self-condemnation and in the mighty power of geometrical equality in both worlds two the reference of the mythus to the previous discussion should not be overlooked the fate reserved for incurable criminals such as archelaus the retaliation of the box on the ears the nakedness of the souls and of the judges who are stripped of the clothes or disguises which rhetoric and public opinion have hitherto provided for them compare swift's notion that the universe is a suit of clothes tale of a tub 
the fiction seems to have involved plato in the necessity of supposing that the soul retained a sort of corporeal likeness after death three the appeal of the authority of homer who says that odysseus saw minos in his court holding a golden sceptre which gives verisimilitude to the tale it is scarcely necessary to repeat that plato is playing both sides of the game and that in criticizing the characters of gorgias and Paulus, we are not passing any judgment on historical individuals but only attempting to analyze the dramatis personae as they were conceived by him neither is it necessary to enlarge upon the obvious fact that plato is a dramatic writer whose real opinions cannot always be assumed to be those which he puts into the mouth of socrates or any other speaker who appears to have the best of the argument or to repeat the observation that he is a poet as well as a philosopher or to remark that he is not to be tried by a modern standard but interpreted with reference to his place in the history of thought and the opinion of his time it has been said that the most characteristic feature of the gorgias is the assertion of the right of dissent or private judgment but this mode of stating the question is really opposed both to the spirit of plato and of ancient philosophy generally for plato is not asserting any abstract right or duty of toleration or advantage to be derived from freedom of thought indeed in some other parts of his writings e g laws he has fairly laid himself open to the charge of intolerance no speculations had as yet arisen respecting the liberty of prophesying and plato is not affirming any abstract right of this nature but he is asserting the duty and right of the one wise and true man to dissent from the folly and falsehood of the many at the same time he acknowledges the natural result which he hardly seeks to avert that he who speaks the truth to a multitude regardless of consequences will probably share the fate of socrates the irony of plato sometimes veils from us the height of idealism to which he soars when declaring truths which the many will not receive he puts on an armor which cannot be pierced by them the weapons of ridicule are taken out of their hands and the laugh is turned against themselves the disguises which socrates assumes are like the parables of the new testament or the oracles of the delphian god they half conceal half reveal his meaning the more he is in earnest the more ironical he becomes and he is never more in earnest or more ironical than in the gorgias he hardly troubles himself to answer seriously the objections of gorgias and paulus and therefore he sometimes appears to be careless of the ordinary requirements of logic yet in the highest sense he is always logical and consistent with himself the form of the argument may be paradoxical the substance is an appeal to the higher reason he is uttering truths before they can be understood as in all ages the words of philosophers when they are first uttered 
have found the world unprepared for them. A further misunderstanding arises out of the wildness of his humour. He is supposed not only by Callicles, but by the rest of mankind, to be jesting when he is profoundly serious. At length he makes even Paulus in earnest. Finally he drops the argument, and heedless any longer of the forms of dialectic, he loses himself in a sort of triumph, while at the same time he retaliates upon his adversaries. From this confusion of jest and earnest, we may now return to the ideal truth, and draw out in a simple form the main theses of the dialogue. First Thesis It is a greater evil to do than to suffer injustice. Compare the New Testament. It is better to suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. 1 Peter And the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Matthew The words of Socrates are more abstract than the words of Christ, but they equally imply that the only real evil is moral evil. The righteous may suffer or die, but they have their reward, and even if they had no reward, would be happier than the wicked. The world, represented by Paulus, is ready, when they are asked, to acknowledge that injustice is dishonorable, and for their own sakes men are willing to punish the offender, compare Republic. But they are not equally willing to acknowledge that injustice, even if successful, is essentially evil, and has the nature of disease and death. Especially when crimes are committed on the great scale, the crimes of tyrants, ancient or modern, after a while, seeing that they cannot be undone, and have become a part of history, mankind are disposed to forgive them, not from any magnanimity or charity, but because their feelings are blunted by time, and to forgive is convenient to them. The tangle of good and evil can no longer be unraveled, and although they know that the end cannot justify the means, they feel also that good has often come out of evil. But Socrates would have us pass the same judgment on the tyrant now and always, though he is surrounded by his satellites and has the applauses of Europe and Asia ringing in his ears, though he is the civilizer or liberator of half a continent, he is and always will be the most miserable of men. The greatest consequences for good or for evil cannot alter a hair's breadth the morality of actions which are right or wrong in themselves. This is the standard which Socrates holds up to us. Because politics, and perhaps human life generally, are of a mixed nature, we must not allow our principles to sink to the level of our practice. And so of private individuals, to them too, the world occasionally speaks of the consequences of their actions. If they are lovers of pleasure, they will ruin their health. If they are false or dishonest, they will lose their character. But Socrates would speak to them, not of what will be, but of what is, 
of the present consequence of lowering and degrading the soul. And all higher natures, or perhaps all men everywhere, if they were not tempted by interest or passion, would agree with him. They would rather be the victims than the perpetrators of an act of treachery or of tyranny. Reason tells them that death comes sooner or later to all, and is not so great an evil as an unworthy life, or rather, if rightly regarded, not an evil at all, but to a good man the greatest good. For in all of us there are slumbering ideals of truth and right, which may at any time awaken and develop a new life in us. Second Thesis it is better to suffer for wrong-doing than not to suffer. There might have been a condition of human life in which the penalty followed at once, and was proportioned to the offence. Moral evil would then be scarcely distinguishable from physical. Mankind would avoid vice as they avoid pain or death. But nature, with a view of deepening and enlarging our characters, has for the most part hidden from us the consequences of our actions, and we can only foresee them by an effort of reflection. To awaken in us this habit of reflection is the business of early education, which is continued in maturer years by observation and experience. The spoilt child is in later life said to be unfortunate. He had better have suffered when he was young and been saved from suffering afterwards. But is not the sovereign equally unfortunate whose education and manner of life are always concealing from him the consequences of his own actions, until at length they are revealed to him in some terrible downfall, which may, perhaps, have been caused not by his own fault? Another illustration is afforded by the pauper and criminal classes scarcely reflect at all, except on the means by which they can compass their immediate ends. We pity them, and make allowances for them, but we do not consider that the same principle applies to human actions generally. Not to have been found out in some dishonesty or folly, regarded from a moral or religious point of view, is the greatest of misfortunes. The success of our evil doings is a proof that the gods have ceased to strive with us, and have given us over to ourselves. There is nothing to remind us of our sins, and therefore nothing to correct them. Like our sorrows, they are healed by time, while rank corruption, mining all within, infects unseen. The accustomed irony of Socrates adds a corollary to the argument. Would you punish your enemy? You should allow him to escape unpunished. This is the true retaliation. Compare the obscure verse of Proverbs. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. Etc. Quoted in Romans. Men are not in the habit of dwelling upon the dark side of their own lives. They do not easily see themselves as others see them. They are very kind and very blind to their own faults. The rhetoric of self-love is always pleading with them on their own behalf, 
adopting a similar figure of speech socrates would have them use rhetoric not in defence but in accusation of themselves as they are guided by feeling rather than by reason to their feelings the appeal must be made they must speak to themselves they must argue with themselves they must paint in eloquent words the character of their own evil deeds to any suffering which they have deserved they must persuade themselves to submit under the figure there lurks a real thought which expressed in another form admits of an easy application to ourselves for do not we too accuse as well as excuse ourselves and we call to our aid the rhetoric of prayer and preaching which the mind silently employs while the struggle between the better and the worse is going on within us and sometimes we are too hard upon ourselves because we want to restore the balance which self-love has overthrown or disturbed and then again we may hear a voice as of a parent consoling us in religious diaries a sort of drama is often enacted by the consciences of men accusing or else excusing them for all our life long we are talking with ourselves what is thought but speech what is feeling but rhetoric and if rhetoric is used on one side only we shall be always in danger of being deceived and so the words of socrates which at first sounded paradoxical come home to the experience of all of us third thesis we do not what we will but what we wish socrates would teach us a lesson which we are slow to learn that good intentions and even benevolent actions when they are not prompted by wisdom are of no value we believe something to be for our good which we afterwards find out not to be for our good the consequences may be inevitable for they may follow an invariable law yet they may often be the very opposite of what is expected by us when we increase pauperism by almsgiving when we tie up property without regard to changes of circumstances when we say hastily what we deliberately disapprove when we do in a moment of passion what upon reflection we regret when from any want of self-control we give another an advantage over us we are doing not what we will but what we wish all actions of which the consequences are not weighed and foreseen are of this impotent and paralytic sort and the author of them has the least possible power while seeming to have the greatest for he is actually bringing about the reverse of what he intended and yet the book of nature is open to him in which he who runs may read if he will exercise ordinary attention every day offers him experiences of his own and of other men's characters and he passes them unheeded by the contemplation of the consequences of actions and the ignorance of men in regard to them seems to have led socrates to his famous thesis virtue is knowledge which is not so much an error or paradox as a half-truth seen first in the twilight of ethical philosophy 
but also the half of the truth which is especially needed in the present age. For as the world has grown older, men have been too apt to imagine a right and wrong apart from consequences, while a few, on the other hand, have sought to resolve them wholly into their consequences. But Socrates, or Plato for him, neither divides nor identifies them. Though the time has not yet arrived either for utilitarian or transcendental systems of moral philosophy, he recognizes the two elements which seem to lie at the basis of morality. Compare the following. Now and for us, it is a time to Hellenize and to praise knowing. For we have Hebraized too much and have overvalued doing, but the habits and discipline received from Hebraism remain for our race an eternal possession, and as humanity is constituted, one must never assign the second rank today without being ready to restore them to the first tomorrow. Sir William W. Hunter, Preface to Orissa. Fourth Thesis To Be and Not to Seem is the End of Life. The Greek in the age of Plato admitted praise to be one of the chief incentives to moral virtue, and to most men the opinion of their fellows is a leading principle of action. Hence a certain element of seeming enters into all things. All or almost all desire to appear better than they are, that they may win the esteem or admiration of others. A man of ability can easily feign the language of piety or virtue, and there is an unconscious as well as a conscious hypocrisy which, according to Socrates, is the worst of the two. Again, there is the sophistry of classes and professions. There are the different opinions about themselves and one another which prevail in different ranks of society. There is the bias given to the mind by the study of one department of human knowledge to the exclusion of the rest, and stronger far the prejudice engendered by a pecuniary or party interest in certain tenets. There is the sophistry of law, the sophistry of medicine, the sophistry of politics, the sophistry of theology. All of these disguises wear the appearance of the truth. Some of them are very ancient, and we do not easily disengage ourselves from them for we have inherited them, and they have become a part of us. The sophistry of an ancient Greek sophist is nothing compared with the sophistry of a religious order, or of a church in which during many ages falsehood has been accumulating, and everything has been said on one side and nothing on the other. The conventions and customs which we observe in conversation and the opposition of our interests when we have dealings with one another. The buyer saith, it is not, it is not, etc., are always obscuring our sense of truth and right. The sophistry of human nature is far more subtle than the deceit of any one man. Few persons speak freely from their own natures, and scarcely any one dares to think for himself. Most of us imperceptibly fall into the opinions of those around us, which we partly help to make. A man who would shake himself loose from them requires great force of mind. He hardly knows where to begin in the search after truth, 
on every side he is met by the world, which is not an abstraction of theologians, but the most real of all things, being another name for ourselves, when regarded collectively and subjected to the influences of society. Then comes Socrates, impressed, as no other man ever was, with the unreality and untruthfulness of popular opinion, and tells mankind that they must be and not seem. How are they to be? At any rate, they must have the spirit and desire to be. If they are ignorant, they must acknowledge their ignorance to themselves. If they are conscious of doing evil, they must learn to do well. If they are weak, and have nothing in them which they can call themselves, they must acquire firmness and consistency. If they are indifferent, they must begin to take an interest in the great questions which surround them. They must try to be what they would fain appear in the eyes of their fellow men. A single individual cannot easily change public opinion, but he can be true and innocent, simple and independent. He can know what he does and what he does not know, and though not without an effort, he can form a judgment of his own, at least in common matters. In his most secret actions he can show the same high principle, compare republic, which he shows when supported and watched by public opinion. And on some fitting occasion, on some question of humanity or truth or right, even an ordinary man, from the natural rectitude of his disposition, may be found to take up arms against a whole tribe of politicians and lawyers, and be too much for them. End of Part 3 Recording by Kevin Johnson